Hi, it's Shannon Ballard. Before we get to our latest story, I want to say a special thanks to all my patrons who make Southern Mysteries possible, including new patrons, Jessica from Mercer, Pennsylvania, Amelia from Bloomington, Indiana, Andrew from Kitchener, Ontario, and Rhonda, Kate, Rosemary, Karen, Crystal, and Wendy, who are supporting and listening from mysterious locations. When you join them in supporting Southern Mysteries on Patreon, you can access the patron-exclusive podcast, Audacious, Tales of American Crime, along with previously released patron podcast. Plus, you can hear the archive of the first three seasons of Southern Mysteries, which you can't hear anywhere else. If you like this independent podcast and you want to support the show and hear more stories, check the show out on Patreon and join today at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. In 1959, Osprey, Florida, was shaken by the murder of the Walker family just days before Christmas. Decades on, the quadruple murder remains unsolved. Some investigators believe there is a connection between the murders of the Walkers in Florida and the Clutter family murders 1,600 miles away in Kansas. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the Walker family murders. Osprey, Florida, just south of Sarasota, is home to about 6,000 people. In the 1950s, the community along the Intracoastal Waterway was home to just a few thousand. In 1959, the small town was shaken by the brutal murders of the Walker family. 25-year-old Cliff Walker was a cowhand at Palmer Ranch. Cliff and his 24-year-old wife, Christine, lived in a simple white clapboard home on the ranch with their three-year-old son, Jimmy, and one-year-old daughter, Debbie. Cliff and Christine were high school sweethearts. Christine was a flirty and outgoing drum majorette at Arcadia High School when she met Cliff. He was Christine's opposite, quiet and all cowboy. Christine Walker was a beautiful woman who was pursued by many young men through high school and beyond. She would often jokingly remind Cliff about that when they would fight, wanted him to remember how lucky he was to have her in his life. The two married after high school and settled into a rural life on the Palmer Ranch. So rural, their closest neighbor lived a mile away. Cliff loved it, but Christine struggled with how little they had compared to the rest of her family and could occasionally feel a little shut off. Her mother said that during one of the last conversations she had with Christine, her daughter mentioned she knew how lucky she was to have real love with Cliff, even if they didn't have a fancy house and she couldn't buy the expensive clothes she longed for. Cliff and Christine Walker were very close with another couple who lived on the ranch, Don McLeod and his wife Lucy. Don was a fellow cowhand on Palmer Ranch, and tragically, 
he would be the one who discovered his friends had been murdered. On December 20th, 1959, Cliff Walker and Don McLeod planned to go hog hunting. Don woke up early, hooked up his horse trailer to his truck, loaded up his horse, and headed out to pick up Cliff. When Don pulled up to the Walker family home, he parked his truck and immediately noticed how dark it was around the house and quiet. Cliff and Christine were early risers, and with a planned hunt, Don assumed Cliff would be up and ready to head out the door when he arrived. Cliff's Jeep was parked outside of the house. So was Christine's car. So Don assumed they must have just slept in. Don knocked on the door, and no one answered. He knocked on windows, too, but there was no response. Don McLeod felt something was off. He later explained he worried that the family's gas heater had gone out. Maybe they had been poisoned while they were sleeping. He hoped Cliff would forgive him for breaking in, but he had to check on his friends. Don walked to the screen door, pulled out his pocket knife, and cut through the screen so he could unhook the door latch and walk into the kitchen. He never imagined he was walking into a crime scene. The first thing he noticed as he entered was Christine's bare feet in the doorway leading to the living room. As he moved closer, he saw her dress was pulled up around her waist, and Christine was lying in a pool of blood. Christine Walker had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and shot twice in the head. Don then saw Cliff on his back in the corner of the living room. He was still wearing his cowboy hat, and his three-year-old son, Jimmy, was curled up next to his dad on the floor. Both had been shot and killed. Don McLeod suddenly realized the killer could still be in the house, so he rushed back out the door. Because his truck had a trailer attached, he figured it would be faster to take Cliff's Jeep. He made the one-mile drive to a local grocery store, where he used a payphone to call police. Sarasota County Sheriff Ross Boyer responded to the scene with his deputies around dawn. When police searched the home, they discovered one-year-old Debbie in the bathroom. She had been shot, then drowned in the bathtub. Authorities investigating the crime said from the beginning they struggled with the brutality of these murders. Sheriff Boyer noticed streaks of blood around three-year-old Jimmy, suggesting that after the killer shot him, Jimmy did not immediately die. The little boy was able to crawl to his father, curled up against him, before he died. Authorities believe that after shooting one-year-old Debbie, the killer ran out of ammunition. The child was still alive, so the killer used a sock to plug the drain in the bathtub and drown Debbie in shallow water. There had never been a crime like this in Osprey. Sheriff Boyer needed all the help he could get. He had to ask a newspaper photographer to document the crime scene. He also called in help from a fingerprint expert from a neighboring county. 
Sheriff Boyer later said the amount of clues they collected from the Walker house made him believe this murder could be solved. A cigarette wrapper that wasn't from a brand Cliff smoked, seven spent 22 caliber shells, a bloody cowboy boot print, a bloody print from the bathtub faucet handle, a semen sample from Christine's clothing, and bloody hills that belonged to Christine, along with several pieces of bloodied clothing. There was hope that the shell casings would help police identify the murder weapon, but investigators couldn't tell if the casings came from a 22 caliber pistol or rifle. There was a distinct mark on the casings that could help them identify the murder weapon through ballistic testing, if they found it. The Florida Sheriff's Bureau reports on the Walker family murders consist of more than 700 pages of investigative reports, including more than 75 ballistic tests that were ordered when a suspect was considered or under active investigation. None of those ballistic tests that are a part of public records returned positive results, and the murder weapon has never been publicly identified. Now, as investigators searched the Walker house, they discovered several items were missing, including their marriage certificate, which was the only thing hanging on the wall in the Walker's simple home. Also missing, Cliff's pocket knife and Christine's high school majorette uniform that she stored in a cedar chest. Considering what had been taken from their home, investigators theorized Christine knew her attacker, and the killer could have been familiar to the family. The first person interviewed as the investigation began was the man who discovered the bodies, Don McLeod. He agreed to a polygraph test in which he was asked if he knew Christine had been sexually assaulted before she was shot, and also asked whether he had ever shot a child. Don McLeod found these questions ridiculous, but he cooperated, passed the test, and was eliminated as a suspect. Police from two counties and the Florida Sheriff's Bureau scoured the Walker home and the surrounding property with bloodhounds. This created a problem. It was 1959, and preserving a crime scene wasn't top of mind. As investigators and deputies from those three departments arrived at the home, they pulled their cars up close to the property, which may have destroyed tire tread evidence that could have led them to the killer's vehicle. As to that bloody cowboy boot print found at the scene, it turned out one of the deputies was wearing cowboy boots when he walked the crime scene, stepped in a pool of blood, and continued to move about the home. Through interviews with the Walker friends and family, investigators pieced together a timeline of the Walker's movements leading up to the day they were murdered. On December 18th, Christine was seen shopping for Christmas party clothes for her son, Jimmy. Cliff's mom visited the Walkers that day, and Christine mentioned to her mother-in-law, Cliff almost got himself killed in a fight with someone the day before. His mother wanted to know more, but Christine shut down the conversation when she noticed Cliff was about to enter the room. On December 19th, the family planned a full day of errands. 
They had a newly cut Christmas tree on their front porch and planned to bring it into the house that night to decorate. People who saw the family on December 19th recalled Christine looked beautiful as always. She wore a red and white print dress and high heels, and Debbie wore a little blue plaid dress. Christine shopped first for groceries while Cliff looked after the kids. While in the checkout, Christine chatted with the cashier, who asked about the family, how everyone was doing. Christine mentioned Cliff almost got himself killed fighting with someone that week. Again, didn't say who Cliff fought or why the fight happened. After grocery shopping, the walkers drove to Altman Chevrolet in Sarasota. Cliff wanted to trade in the family car, so they test drove a Hudson Jet and a green and white Chevrolet sedan. They decided not to make any trade that day and mentioned they wanted to consider more options. When they left the car lot, they stopped to pick up candy, cookies, and drinks for the kids, and Cliff bought his carton of cool cigarettes. Cliff and Christine then headed to visit their best friends, Don and Lucy McLeod. The men decided to go out for a quick hunt and afterwards loaded Cliff's Jeep with cattle feed to take back to his house. Christine left the McLeods first, likely to get the groceries home before anything spoiled. As she headed out the door, just before 4 p.m., Lucy handed Christine a Christmas card. A Cliff stayed behind with the kids for a few minutes and then headed home in the Jeep. On the way home, he stopped at a filling station to put air in the tires. A friend was there, so the men chatted for a few minutes, and they talked about the weather moving in. It was starting to get dark, and a cold system was moving through. This friend at the filling station was the last person to see Cliff Walker and his children alive. When Christine Walker arrived home around 4 p.m., it's believed someone was parked in her usual spot. Friends and family explained to investigators Christine always parked the family car to the left or right of the walk-in gate so that when she left the car, she only had to take a few steps to get into the house. Christine mentioned to family that living in a rural area made her wary of walking into the house alone. She always parked as close as she could. When Christine returned home on December 19th, she parked two car links to the left of the walk-in gate. This means someone else must have been parked in her usual spot. Someone Christine may have known because she entered her home that afternoon and did what she always did. Possibly while chatting with the person who would kill her, she hung her purse on its hook just inside the house, then put away the groceries. She even had time to display the McLeod's Christmas card on top of the refrigerator. But at some point, something went so horribly wrong. Sheriff Boyer theorized the killer may have come on to Christine. She rejected him, and things escalated. He began to beat her, which was evidenced by the bruising on her face, and Christine Walker fought for her life. She used one of her high heels as a weapon 
hitting the assailant and wrestling the killer to the point she was on the porch at one point, trying to get away. One of her bloodied high heels was later found on the porch by police. As Christine continued to wrestle with the assailant, he gained control and pulled Christine into Jimmy's room where she was sexually assaulted and shot twice in the head. The killer took a quilt from Jimmy's bed and used it to wipe blood from Christine's legs, then pulled her into the living room where she was partially covered with that quilt. Investigators believe Cliff and the children arrived home around 4.30, and it's likely Christine was already dead when Cliff parked his Jeep in front of the house. Cliff may have recognized the car parked in Christine's usual spot or may have been suspicious of it being there because he did something he normally wouldn't do. He left the feed Don McLeod loaded into his Jeep inside the Jeep, along with his rifle. Cliff always brought his rifle into the house, and he wouldn't leave feed for his cows in his Jeep overnight. As Cliff entered the home with his children, he was ambushed, shot once in the face, and the children were killed soon after. Why would someone murder the Walker family? Cliff Walker earned $55 a week. His simple pocket knife was taken along with a few dollars, but it appeared that most of the children's Christmas presents were still hidden under the Christmas tree on the front porch. Considering Christine's drum majorette uniform was taken from the cedar chest where she always stored it, and the Walker's frame marriage certificate was reported missing, police felt the murders were personal. Sheriff Boyer set out to learn all he could about the Walkers. He learned Cliff, like many cowboys, could have a bit of a temper. And he learned that Christine Walker was flirty. She was young and attractive. And Sheriff Boyer wondered if she had been pursued by a man who became obsessed with her and decided to kill the family when she turned him down. Could that be the man? Cliff fought with just days before the family died. That's where investigators started. They questioned male family members and friends who had a reputation of heavy drinking that led to arguments and violence. They then questioned men in the area who had a history of violence against women. Investigators interviewed Christine's friends to learn more about her life in the months and years before the murders. They learned Christine asked several of the women if they knew how to terminate a pregnancy. Early in 1959, she also mentioned to at least two of these women that she would rather be dead than have another child. Sheriff Boyer wondered if Christine meant she didn't want another child with Cliff or if she didn't want a child with a lover. There were rumors Christine had been unfaithful to Cliff. It's a theory surrounding the murders that police could never verify or directly connect to motive in the killings. Years passed as authorities pursued every lead to try to identify the person or persons who murdered the Walker family. 
nearly 600 suspects were questioned, including Curtis McCall. In 1963, his cousin came forward to tell police Curtis was having an affair with Christine at the time she was murdered. His cousin believed Curtis murdered the Walkers because of that relationship. Now, he claimed Christine and Curtis dated in high school, and Curtis was obsessed with her. Authorities took this lead seriously because Curtis was known as a no-good troublemaker who owned a 22 caliber pistol and had been on edge since the Walker murders. They learned Curtis had a history of violence, had worked as a dispatcher with the Florida Highway Patrol until he was fired for attacking a man who had been arrested by a state trooper. He could never explain why he attacked this person. He said he blacked out and just went into a fit of rage. When interviewed about the Walker case, Curtis McCall claimed he never dated Christine and had seen her only a few weeks before she was murdered when she and Cliff stopped by to ask him about a horse. He acknowledged that he, like many people in this rural part of Florida, owned a 22 caliber gun, but he said he had sold it years earlier and couldn't remember the name of the person he sold it to. McCall agreed to take a polygraph test, which was inconclusive. Also among the hundreds of suspects questioned in this case was the Walker's meter reader, Stanley Mock. Mock read meters for the electric company and had been a suspect in a murder that happened just months before the Walker's. 22-year-old University of Florida student Chandler Steffens had been found dead in his apartment in August 1959. His head had been wrapped in tape with only his nostrils and ears uncovered. Dubbed the mummy murder, Chandler Steffens' murder was never solved. Police suspected Stanley Mock, who read meters at Steffens' apartment complex. When authorities looked into Mock's life, they learned he sought help from a psychiatrist to help him deal with a growing urge to kill his wife and two small children. When Sarasota police learned of the Walker murders and the Mock connection as their meter reader, they brought him to the attention of Sheriff Boyer. But no evidence has ever been found to link Stanley Mock to the Mummy murder or the Walker murders. Another prime suspect emerged, 65-year-old Wilbur Tooker, known by locals as Dirty Old Mr. Tooker. He lived a mile from the Walkers, and Christine often mentioned to her mom she dreaded visits from Tooker because he attempted to kiss her and had propositioned her several times. When Cliff learned about this, he threatened to kill Tooker and told him to never return to their home. Now, Tooker's friend, William Hosmer, told investigators Tooker was infatuated with Christine and constantly talked about her. When Tooker was questioned, police learned he had a solid alibi for most of the afternoon and evening of December 19th. He dined with a friend in Sarasota sometime between 5 and 7 and was on stage at Bradenton High School 
by 7.45 that night playing violin with the West Coast Symphony Orchestra. Tucker was never officially cleared because he had no alibi for the hour in which the Walkers were murdered. He could never tell police where he was between 4 and 5 p.m. on December 19, 1959. But police never found evidence linking Wilbur Tucker to the crime. One of Cliff Walker's family members was also a suspect in the crime. Albert Walker was distraught at the Walker's wake and their funerals. He wailed and fainted, leaving some of the family to believe his grief was fake. The Walker family brought Albert to the attention of investigators. He was known as a wild and rowdy man whose own family said it was possible he could commit a crime like this. He was questioned, agreed to a polygraph test, which he passed. Many family members suspected he was involved, especially after a polygraph expert revealed in 1987 that old polygraph results were worthless. Polygraph test results may be a bit more reliable now than in the 1960s, but they're still generally inadmissible in court. Albert Walker remained under a cloud of suspicion for decades, which is why, in 2006, he agreed to submit to DNA testing. His DNA did not match evidence collected at the crime scene. Suspect after suspect has been ruled out, either by questionable polygraph tests of the 1950s and 60s or due to lack of evidence. Authorities did initially withhold some critical information from the public and the media after the murders. But the truth was, Sheriff Boyer could not rule out the possibility of more than one killer in the Walker home on that fateful day in December 1959. A blonde hair was found inside Christine's dress. Christine had light brown hair, and a dark-colored hair was found in the bloody scene in the bathroom near Debbie's body. She, too, had light brown hair, like her mom. Within weeks of the Walker murders, Sheriff Boyer considered two suspects who were known to have been in Florida around the time of the murders. Richard Hickok, and Perry Smith, the men who murdered four members of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas. Smith and Hickok were petty thieves who met while in prison at the Kansas State Penitentiary. They learned about Herb Clutter from a fellow inmate who claimed he worked on this wealthy farmer's land in a small town in Kansas. The inmate told Hickok that Mr. Clutter stashed a lot of money in a safe in his house. When released from prison, Hickok and Smith made arrangements to drive 400 miles to Holcomb, Kansas, to steal from the Clutters. On November 15, 1959, they entered the Clutter home when four of the six family members were sleeping. Initially, they quietly looked for a safe. But when they could not find it, they woke up Mr. Clutter, who explained all he had was a little cash that he handed over to them. He explained there was no safe, no stash of money. 
Hickok and Smith woke up the rest of the family, searched the house again, and confirmed Mr. Clutter's story. Hickok and Smith now had a big problem. The Clutter family had seen them, could identify them, which meant, in the minds of Hickok and Smith, the family had to die. They executed the Clutters in cold blood, ransacked the house, and took a small radio, a pair of binoculars, and $50. Mr. Clutter was found sprawled on a mattress in the basement. His hands were bound and his mouth was taped shut. He had been stabbed, his throat was slashed, and he was shot in the head. On a couch in an adjoining room, 15-year-old Kenyon Clutter was found, gagged, and shot in the head. The bodies of Mrs. Clutter and her 16-year-old daughter Nancy were found in separate upstairs bedrooms. One had been bound and gagged. Both had been shot in the head. Hickok and Smith fled Kansas and stole a car they used to move across 13 states before they were finally captured in Las Vegas on December 30th, 1959. On March 20th of 1960, a jury returned a verdict of guilty and recommended the death penalty for Hickok and Smith. They were executed by hanging on April 14, 1965. The Clutter family murders were the subject of the second best-selling true crime book in American history, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Before Hickok and Smith were captured, Capote and his childhood friend and fellow author, Harper Lee, traveled to Kansas to learn more about the crime and how it was affecting the town. Knowing he wanted to write a book about these shocking murders, Capote partnered with Lee to interview locals and investigators. Once Hickok and Smith were tried and convicted, Capote was able to interview both of them. He spent six years working on In Cold Blood, which was published in 1966. To some, the idea that the Clutter family killers could also be the Walker family killers seems preposterous. But it wasn't to Sheriff Boyer and some investigators still working the Walker case and surviving family members don't think it's preposterous decades on, especially considering Hickok and Smith's location at the time the Walkers were murdered and the eerie similarities between these murders. Both were quadruple homicides, two children and their parents murdered. Hickok and Smith were known to have been in Florida sometime before they were captured in Las Vegas at the end of 1959. Following their arrest, pictures of Hickok and Smith were printed in national papers. The Sarasota Herald printed the photo with the headline, Have You Seen Them? Residents from across Florida, including Sarasota and Osprey, began calling to report sightings of these men. Several people around Nocatee, the route the men took to head north out of Florida after the Walker murders, said they'd seen these men, one dark-haired, the other light-haired. The light-haired man had scratches all over his face. When Hickok and Smith were spotted around Nocatee, 
they were asking for directions. Closer to Osprey, a saleswoman saw the men at Grant's department store in Sarasota the day of the Walker murders. The store was just a few miles from the Walker home. A local farmer said Hickok and Smith were the two strangers who stopped at his house and asked for help fixing a fender. They were identified by a gas station owner who recognized them as the men who stopped in to inquire about auto paint shops. The questions related to sightings of the men near the Walker home, the questions they asked about fixing their car, could be a direct link to the Walker family. Sheriff's records note the Walkers were considering buying a 1956 Chevrolet Bel Air. That is the same make and model of the car Smith and Hickok had stolen and driven to Florida. When Christine and Cliff Walker visited the McLeods on the afternoon of the murders, Lucy McLeod overheard Christine making a phone call. The Walkers didn't have a phone in their home, so they would often make calls from the McLeods. Lucy thought she heard Christine mention something about a car, but she was being careful not to snoop on her friend's phone call and told police she just could not be certain. One of the theories around the Walker murder is that Christine's call may have been an invitation to someone selling a 1956 Chevrolet Bel Air to stop by the Walker house. If it was Smith or Hickok on the other end of the line, Christine may have unknowingly invited the killers to the house and welcomed them in, knowing Cliff would be there soon. Perhaps the car parked in Christine's usual spot was the Chevy Bel Air driven by Hickok and Smith. The Walker home was about 100 feet from the seaboard railway tracks. On the day of the murders, a brakeman for the railway reported seeing a 1956 Chevy in front of the Walker house. Remember, when investigators converged on the crime scene, they parked all of their vehicles in the driveway and all around the property. It destroyed any tire tracks that could have been there before they arrived on scene. Authorities in Florida worked with detectives in Las Vegas who questioned Hickok and Smith about the Walker murders. The men denied any involvement, denied ever being near Sarasota, and passed a lie detector test. Kansas authorities also assisted Florida detectives. They sent Hickok and Smith's fingerprints for comparisons to prints taken from the Walker crime scene. They did not match. It was only later learned the print taken from the Walker bathtub faucet was a palm print, not a fingerprint. By the time authorities learned this, it was too late to ask for palm prints. Hickok and Smith had already been executed. Sheriff Boyer always believed Hickok and Smith could have killed the Walker family. When the men were arrested in Las Vegas, Hickok had a pocket knife with a fruit tree design on him, the exact type of pocket knife stolen from Cliff Walker. Authorities also found children's socks 
and a toddler's greasy undershirt in the stolen car Hickok and Smith were driving when they were captured, possibly taken from the Walker home in their effort to clean up after the murders. Sheriff Boyer also had a report from a police department in Louisiana that offered a connection between Hickok and Smith and the Walker home. A minister purchased two dolls from the men he later recognized in papers as the Clutter family killers. The dolls were still wrapped in Christmas paper when the minister bought them. According to the Florida Sheriff Bureau's report, based on the description of the wrapping paper on the gifts under the Christmas tree on the Walker's front porch, the wrapping paper on the dolls sold in Louisiana was a perfect match. Sheriff Boyer was never able to prove Hickok and Smith were connected to the Walker murder, but it was a theory he maintained until he retired in the 1970s and others took over the case. While Truman Capote never believed Hickok and Smith killed the Walkers, he spent hours interviewing the men in prison before they were executed. He believed the murders in Florida were copycats of the Clutter murders. But there were problems with Truman Capote's research. Witness accounts and records collected by investigators from Kansas and Florida in the years following the publication of In Cold Blood have revealed several key statements made by Capote in the book don't match up with the facts and location of Hickok and Smith between the day they fled Kansas following the Clutter murders and the day they were arrested in Las Vegas. For more than six decades, authorities in Florida have tried to close the cold case of the Walker murders. In December 2012, there was new hope the mystery could be solved. The Sarasota County Sheriff's Department requested a court order to exhume the bodies of Hickok and Smith to collect DNA profiles for testing. In 2004, Sarasota detectives had submitted Christine Walker's underwear that held the semen sample collected in 1959 for DNA testing. By 2008, a full DNA profile was obtained, a sample that could connect the killers of the Clutter family to the Walker family murders. On December 18, 2012, Hickok and Smith's bodies were exhumed. In 2013, the news came that the results were inconclusive. Because so much time had passed, only partial samples could be retrieved from the bodies, making it impossible to extract a full DNA profile. Time and moisture had taken its toll on the bodies of Hickok and Smith, who were buried in simple wooden boxes. And the samples from the Walker crime scene were too degraded and believed to have been contaminated with Christine's DNA. There was one interesting result from the DNA testing of nearly 60 persons of interest. The testing could not conclusively show the DNA at the crime scene came from Hickok or Smith or any of these persons of interest but the testing could exclude every one of these 60 persons of interest, except Perry Smith. This leaves open a possibility 
that Hickok and Smith were in the Walker home and murdered the family. But it's only a possibility. Investigators and the Myers and Walker families continue to hope for answers to this mystery. There is a glimmer of hope that ever-emerging DNA technology could provide a way to test partial DNA profiles that were taken when the Clutter family killers were exhumed. And family members of the victims have asked about familial DNA testing to try to find a connection to the killer or killers. Since the Walker family was laid to rest in Florida on December 22, 1959, the mystery of who killed this family and why has haunted investigators who worked the case and the people who knew and loved Christine, Cliff, Jimmy, and Debbie. The 1959 Walker family murder case is the oldest open case at the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office. Florida detectives have never ruled anything out, including a possibility of a connection between Hickok, Smith, and the Walker murders. It seems beyond coincidental that these quadruple murderers were within miles of the Walker home on the day they died. There are similarities between the random and gruesome murders of both families and strange things taken from the Clutter and Walker family homes. But there is still belief that someone who knew Christine killed the family, someone very close to home. There's the majorette uniform that was taken from the scene and never recovered. Christine's friends told investigators She showed it off often, and all of her friends and family who had been to that house knew she kept it in a cedar chest. As to the marriage certificate, reportedly stolen from the Walker home, in 2013, the certificate turned up in a box of items given to Cliff Walker's niece by one of her family members. They explained there had been confusion over the license location for decades, but learned it had always been in the possession of family members, including one who had been named as a suspect and then cleared by DNA testing. To this day, the strongest tip that's ever come in to the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office about the murders was called in back in 1994. That August, an unidentified woman called to explain she was a bartender in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. She said she had a strange conversation with a customer. He started talking a lot one night after having several drinks. And then he began weeping and admitted to her he had, quote, killed some people in Osprey, Florida when he was younger. The caller said the man was in his 60s worked odd jobs around town, and was a gun enthusiast. She claimed the man mentioned the name Walker in between crying and his confession. Authorities tried to get more information from her, but she sounded nervous on the phone, refused to give her name, did promise to try to talk to him and get more information, and then she just hung up. She never called again, 
And despite releasing the information to the public in an effort to find the woman, investigators have never been able to identify her. Unfortunately, with the passage of time and the death of so many prime suspects in this case, even exclusion of some of the suspects through DNA testing, the identity of the Walker family murderers may forever remain shrouded in mystery. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. If you would like to learn more about the Walker family murders and the Clutter murders, check the sources for this episode in the show notes, which you can find at southernmysteries.com. And on a personal note, if you've just learned about the Walker family and the possible connection to the Clutter murders in Kansas, I would highly recommend a reread of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. You read it in a whole new light with new information from Kansas and Florida investigators. And Capote did briefly mention the Walker family. That brief mention stands out in the context of a possible connection that we know of now, decades after this book was published. If you enjoy Southern Mysteries, there are several ways you can support the show. After all, this is a show staffed by me and no one else, and your support keeps Southern Mysteries going. You can join me on Patreon and get bonus content there. It's about 100 stories you can't hear anywhere else. You could join and start listening today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. You can also throw some support behind Southern Mysteries by rating and reviewing the show where you're listening. If you like the show and leave a positive review, other people read that and know it's worth checking out. It's a great and free way to share some Southern Mysteries love, which you can also do by sharing your favorite episodes with your circle of friends on your social channels. Thanks so much for supporting Southern Mysteries in any way you can. And thanks, as always, for listening. There might be another star.